you see. And they're going to evangelize the whole earth. What's happening? Israel is now bringing salvation to the whole earth again. And of course, when you get the second coming and the thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth, where's he reigning from? From Jerusalem, because all the promises to Israel are now happening. So the 144,000 is the first wave of evangelism in the Great Tribulation. These Jews get saved, off they go preaching. And remember, the Jews are dispersed. I mean, there are black Jews in Africa, they're thoroughly Jews. Now can you say, see, they won't need to go to missionary college and learn languages, they're going to be there in every country of the world, they're going to preach and people are going to be saved, alright? Then their converts will preach, and there's the second wave of evangelism. And then, as you move up to the actual second coming, we're actually told that what happens then is that an angel goes out, and, every, in, and, and just prior to the second coming, if there's anyone on the earth who hasn't heard the gospel, the angel preaches it to them. So by the time of the second coming, in that seven years, the gospel has been preached to every creature, and that everyone has had a chance to be saved by the second coming, you see. So again, now you can go home, and Revelation suddenly opens up. You're reading a chronological account of from the rapture onwards. All right. When you've got the seven years of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist, etc. Then you've got the second coming in chapter 19. Then you get the thousand year reign of Christ. Then you get the universe expired. I'll just show you, we've already read in Peter about the universe, you know, when it goes up in smoke. If you just find in Revelation and find chapter 20, I'll just show you how to tie up one scripture with another. We've already read the passage from Peter where the universe is dissolved, alright? It goes up in a puff of smoke. Now then, in Revelation 20, verse 11, alright, now this is after the thousand year reign of Christ, it's just before the final judgment. Now look what happens. Then I saw, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Can you see? There's the atomic holocaust that we've read about in Peter. You see, and you can link it all together and get the chronology of the whole thing. You know, and then you get the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state described from chapter 21 onwards, you see. So, I mean, it's, it's really fairly straightforward. It's no particular problem. And when you hit all the visions, like the woman with the sun and the moon and the stars, you've just got to interpret them according to the symbolism in the Old Testament, and you can't go wrong. You know, no fancy guesses or anything like that. Simply um, interpret them. Did people want to hear about the woman with the scientists? I'll give you one example and then the rest you can do. If you turn to Revelation chapter 12, alright? And here, alright, we've got one of the examples of the backcloth. What's going on behind the chronological events, alright? And I'll just read verse, verse 1. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, you can read twenty different theologians and get twenty different answers to who that woman is, what it stands for. Now, the rule is this. The Bible is its own interpreter. No um, word of God is a question of us interpreting it. For every symbolism in the Bible, You've got to find where the symbolism is used elsewhere in the Bible, and it tells you what it means, all right? Now then, bearing that in mind, if you turn to Genesis 37, Genesis chapter 37, because we're looking for the symbolism of the moon and the sun and 12 stars. And I'm going to show you in Genesis where that symbolism is used and explained, all right? And a quick look at the story of Joseph. If you find Genesis 37. Now you remember the thing, Joseph had the various dreams, etc., etc., right? Now if we start um, from verse 9. Genesis 37, verse 9. 
Remember, we got a woman with the moon and the uh, and the star, the sun and the moon, and twelve stars. Now, in verse nine, then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, "Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down before me." Now, Joseph is the twelfth star because the eleven stars are his brothers. All right. Now, verse ten. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? What have we got? We've got this, a woman with the sun and the moon and twelve stars. The sun is Jacob. The moon is his wife. And the twelve stars are the twelve sons of Israel. Can you see? Shall I and your mother and your brothers. So this woman with the sun and the moon and the stars, it's Israel. It's as simple as that. It's the nation of Israel. And if you use those rules, you'll find that these sort of mysterious bits in the Bible will just start to come to light and be no problem. Anyway... We'll end there, alright? If people want to stay and ask more later, fine, but we'll have the natural end to the evening there. I think that like in the news where they're digging up all the fossils and different things like that, not, it's not an evolution question, it's, it's sort of a history type of question, putting things into perspective. Mm. And as much that, obviously, when we go back to the Garden of Eden, that I read them as having, um, they're educated people, well, not educated people, they obviously converse with God and uh, they obviously had the abilities to name animals and do lots of things and they weren't capable and things like this. Yeah. And obviously the animals and different things we do know do evolve, um, but not to the extent of Darwin. Um, oh. you know, things actually go on forward. But I mean, the actual, my sort of thing was they're still going about sort of caveman and the ice age and this and the other. Mm. How does it fit into the Bible? Because I can't see it. Right. It's oh. just a, a, a sort of a side issue that's somehow got in and you know it's not Darwin it's a sort of separate issue which is sort of reflecting because even after Noah all the descendants of Noah would have obviously been educated so there wouldn't have been people you know it was started somewhere and right. uh, you know I just want to know where it fitted in sort of into the world. Yeah. Can I right. just, I've been thinking actually in the week the same sort of thing about you know the, there were three ice ages well one of those was that our sort of European effect of, in, the, in the Middle East, it'd be hot, so they would have the water. Yeah. But up in the northern parts, would we have had that ice age that, you know, we know that that actually created our, our well, I mean, we, we can see that's true, because we would one time join to the continent, and uh, then after the ice age, uh, England became an island. Right, right, okay. That's the thought that came to me. It's funny that uh, Andrew, not funny, because I expect what you call you condense the question. Yeah, I'll certainly condense the question. First of all, I'll deal with the thing about the Ice Age, okay, because that is quite important. You see, what we've got is that obviously we, sort of today, we look at the Earth in the state in which it is in, alright? And of course, scientists then start to ask, what processes have occurred in order for the Earth to be in the state in which it is in today? Now, the clash, as it were, between what you might call modern scientific theory and the scripture is this, that the state in which the Earth is in could be explained by two different theories. Right? Let's call them theories for the time being. There are two different things that could have happened which would explain why the world is in the state it's in today, i.e. the features of the world, on the surface, under the surface, etc., etc. Now, the two things are this. Firstly, you have a theory, a modern theory of geology and science called uniformitarianism. Now, what this says is this, uniformitarianism, from the word uniform, alright, uniformitarianism. Now, what this says is this, it's saying that throughout history, there have only ever been the forces at work that we see today, alright? And today we see wind action, we see erosion, we see volcanic activity, etc., etc., we see a bit of flooding here and there. Now, what it says, that therefore, 
the processes going on today are all there has ever been and that these processes by and large have got the world in the shape it's in by them simply going on for millions of years. Can you see what I mean? If you've got a wave beating on a cliff, if in so many years it chips away an eighth of an inch of that cliff, can you see that if you give it millions of years it can actually divide two continents? Can you see the thing that I'm trying to say? It simply says that the forces that we see at work today have been going on their way for millions of years. All right. Now then, one of these forces is glaciation. Um, for instance, if you look at various um, aspects of Northern Europe, etc., etc., the idea being that over millions of years, these massive glaciers slowly moved their way along, obviously forging out whole continents as they went. Can you see? Millions upon millions of tons of ice slowly moving its way along and that would make certain parts of the Earth the shape, as it were, that they are today. So there's one theory. Now that is what the modern evolutionary scientist would say happens. His theory is uniformitarianism. It's not a proven theory, but nevertheless he says that's how it happened. Now the other theory is this. It's um, catastrophism, alright, from the word catastrophe. Now then, the state in which the world is in today could be explained another way. And the way it can be explained is rather than the forces we see at work today going on for millions of years, the Earth could have ended up the way it is now if there were forces at work some time ago that aren't at work anymore and could have done it quickly. And of course the point is this, the key to it all is the flood in the time of Noah. Because we tend to have the flood wrong. People think the rains came down and the floods came up. That is not how it happened. If you read the account of the flood of Noah, when God created the earth, what you've got is you've got the earth and the atmosphere and surrounding the planet in Genesis 1, you read about this, there was a, a kind of an envelope of water, alright? Billions upon billions of tons of water in sort of like at the top of the atmosphere of the earth, shrouding the earth. Billions upon billions of tons of it. And of course that was why the environment on the earth before the flood was so beautiful. There were no seasons. It would have just been a hothouse effect. It would have been beautiful. Like Tropical. That's right. Like Absolutely wonderful. Right. Now what happened in the flood partially was that all that water was released on the earth. It came down from space. Now what you've got a billion can I take questions at the end? No, all right, it's right? disconnected with it. I yep. just wanted to ask, is it true that it never rained? Before the flood. That's right, there's no indication it would have rained at all, because in order to have rain you've got to have differences in temperature and things like that. So what happened in the time of Noah is it were God punctured this envelope of water. Now billions and billions and billions of tons of water landed on the earth. I mean, imagine millions of tons of water landing on the earth. To such an extent that it covered the earth nearly to the top of mountains. All right. Now, can you imagine the, the scarring that that did to the surface of the Earth? You see what I'm getting at? Can you see that what would take a massive glacier thousands of years could have been done in a few minutes? Now, here's the whole point. That modern scientists, they look at the present uh, state that the Earth is in. Now, if all there are are the forces at work today. It would take millions of years for it to get like that. But the flood accounts for the lot of it. The flood accounts for all the fossils because everything on the face of the earth was killed almost instantaneously, you see. So in regards to that, I would be bold as to say there weren't any ice ages. But the evidence for what scientists say were the various ice ages was in fact what the flood did in a few days. And I mean, sort of, that is where you get the clash between the Bible and modern science. Because the point is this, both theories fit 
In fact, I think the flood fits better than the other one. All right. But the point is this. Modern scientists are working from a presupposition that there is no God. Therefore, they cannot accept catastrophism because that needs a God. That needs the Bible to be true. And if the Bible's true, there's a God. And that's what modern science, quite unscientifically, has said there isn't. They say there is no God. Therefore, the only alternative they've got is uniformitarianism. Can you see? And hence, we get all these ideas. For instance, another example at school, you were taught how the forests, they got crushed down and over millions of years, you've got the coal deposits. And you're left with the idea that it takes millions of years to produce coal. It doesn't. You're left with the idea that over millions of years, animals get buried in that, in pockets, and then you get oil over millions of years. The pressure produces heat, and right? And so you leave school thinking oil and coal takes millions of years to produce them. Oil and coal can be produced in a few hours. Because what's important isn't the length of time, it's the amount of heat that's generated through the pressure. Now, can you see that the flood... I mean, here you've got massive forest, and down comes billions of tons of water. Well, what's it going to do to that forest? It's going to flatten it and compress it with such power that the heat generated is going to turn that into coal almost overnight. That is scientifically a possibility. But the reason that you were taught at school that it takes millions of years is because modern science will not allow for any force that could have done it in that length of time. Can you see what I mean? Because they reject the flood, all they're left with is the slow processes over millions of years. And the reason they teach that or say that that happened isn't because they've got any proof. But to them, it's the only alternative. But they kind of tell it to you as if it is all absolutely true and proven. So coal and oil, you can produce them very, very fast, all right? And the flood would have accounted for all these things. So in regards to the Ice Ages, there weren't any Ice Ages at all. They didn't happen. But, the cent but at certain parts of the surface of the Earth, it certainly looks like there probably were Ice Ages... But either there were ice ages or there was this massive worldwide flood, and either would account for it, and the Bible says it was the flood. I mean, we can see glaciation sort of going on now. I mean, these big icebergs are there. But the point is that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. There hasn't been time for all the ice ages, but you don't need them. The flood accounts for the whole lot. So having dealt with that, I'll move on to the question that Andy raised. What about the caveman? All right, this sort of, you know, Neolithic man and everything, you know, with his club in one hand and his mate in the other dragging her <laughs> along by her hair. I like it. But uh, Robert likes it. Okay. Now then, okay. Now, the cavemen, where do they fit in? First of all, let's get the modern view. Because the whole idea is supposed evolution. Now, we see today, in, I mean, and it's just a fact in nature, that species adapt themselves to their surroundings, becoming more able and more successful to survive. That nobody doubts, I don't think. I don't doubt that. That is absolutely true. But where the Bible disagrees with modern theory is the idea that given long enough, one species will turn into another. Because there's not a shred of evidence scientifically that that happens. All right. Now then, the whole point is that, I mean, obviously in modern science and Darwin, it all goes back millions of years ago to the amino acids and that stroke of lightning and the primeval soup, all right? And this little amoeba, you know, starts jittering around and doing its thing. Anyway, a few millions of years later, I mean, man begins to emerge. And, of course, to begin with, he's very primitive. He's kind of more like an ape than man, as it were. And the actual theories of Darwin isn't that man came from the apes, but that the apes and men have a common ancestor. That, that's it. So that at some point in the past, there was this creature, and that creature gave way to two branches. Off one branch came the apes, and off the other branch came man. All right, that's... That's what Darwin said. Now then, obviously, the branch that turned into man, to begin with, he, he, was, he was only just a man. Can you see? This very primitive, hardly got a brain, or whatever. And of course, because 
he didn't know what to do. He lived in caves, you know, and then one day he discovered fire and he discovered a club and if you hit something over the head it dropped dead and then you could eat it and things like this. And that slowly, from being a real pea brain, he, he eventually evolves into intelligent man. Now, that's where caveman fits in in modern theory. So that the caveman, to the modern scientist, was early man who hadn't developed into what man is now, but was just a very early example and, and kind of lived in caves because he wouldn't have had the wherewithal to build a house. That, that came millions of years later as intelligence evolved. Okay. Now, that obviously is not what the Bible teaches at all. And the disagreement is this, that the Bible doesn't allow for evolution. All right. So man is not the result of evolution way back amongst this ape-like creature who gave way to the apes and to men. Now, the whole thing is this, that man, remember, scripturally, is only 6,000 years old anyway. The whole universe is only 6,000 years old. Now, the important thing to realise is that intelligence does not evolve, alright? Intelligence was not evolved in the human race, because the human race didn't evolve. It is not true that we are getting any cleverer. Man now is no more intelligent than he was 6,000 years ago. But because he's got 6,000 years of knowledge behind him, he now has more accumulated knowledge. Can you see that? It's important to understand. We look at perhaps life now and life a thousand years ago. And we say, obviously, man has got more clever. That's wrong. Now, the evolutionists jump on this. And they say, well, of course, we're evolving. But it's totally untrue. Men are not cleverer or more intelligent now than they were a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. It's simply that knowledge has accumulated. Can you see what I'm getting? We've got more knowledge behind us now. Therefore, man appears to be cleverer than he used to be, but it's not actually true. We're not getting any more intelligent, but we're gathering more knowledge, and therefore, because we've got more knowledge, we can do more things. So, according to the Bible, then, what happened was that Adam and Eve, as the first man and woman, they were fully intelligent people, all right? Absolutely fully intelligent people. Quite... If the Lord had decided to teach Adam and Eve about nuclear physics, given long enough, they would have understood that. Can you see what I mean? The Lord didn't choose to, but Adam and Eve would have been quite capable of understanding anything, given time, that modern man can. But the point was, they didn't need uh, to sort of start building immediately elaborate things, because they had perfect environment on the earth. But the point is this, civilization, and anthropologists will say this as a fact, civilization appeared all at once about 6,000 years ago. Now that is where modern anthropology has got us. The study of man as man and his history, alright, the scientists have got their cavemen way back in the distant past, but civilization appeared suddenly 6,000 years ago. And of course the reason is this, when Adam and Eve were created and then they had their children, they were quite intelligent and quite able when they produced and started to spread abroad to build cities. They understood metalwork. I mean, they weren't thick in any way at all. But the whole point is, where does the caveman fit in? Because there's no doubt there's evidence that cavemen existed. But where do they fit in if what I've said about man only being 6,000 years old is true? Well, the best way to fit it in is like this. You've heard of these examples when they get skeletons of sort of like the missing link, the ape man, all right? And invariably, they either turn out to be hoaxes or big mistakes, all right? Now, one of the big mistakes was this, that the Neanderthal man kind of, ooh, 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 like this, all, all doubled over, a bit like an ape, all right, eventually it was discovered that it wasn't Neanderthal man or anything like it. It was an example of Homo sapien 
with rickets. You see? Yeah, absolutely true. Now, can you see what happens? Now, eventually, after the flood, environment changes started to happen on the earth. Because that canopy of water that kept the earth like a hothouse, perfect environment, it was gone. You started to get ice and snow in the north and in the south, etc., in the north. And, I mean, suddenly life got very unpleasant on the earth. All right. Now, what that meant is that it was much harder for men after the flood than it was before. Nature was against them with a vengeance. Now then, picture, all right, that modern man, say he was flying his aeroplane, all right, and it crashed on an island in the middle of nowhere, all right? Now, can you see that if the plane was totally destroyed, and if, if they didn't have anything to cut wood, etc., etc., and if they then discovered caves, can you not see that those modern men, where would they live? They would live in the caves. Can you see what I'm saying? The fact that they ended up in caves because the environment was hostile and things had taken a change for the worse, they would leave the evidence that man had lived in caves and therefore would be a caveman, but that would be a totally different thing to the caveman that the modern scientists go on about. Can you see what I mean? Undoubtedly, in the past, and perhaps on some parts of the earth we haven't explored yet, even now, there are people who live in caves, all right? They, they haven't got modern technology, I mean, they can't chop down trees to build houses or whatever, but they live in caves. Hence you get the paintings in caves, all right? And probably these men, all they did wear were skins. They were fighting for their lives. You know, I mean, sort of all the wild animals out there which they had to go out and kill to eat. And all the time, those beasts were preying on the men as well. And can you see, life, life was hard and life was tough. And they would have been cavemen in the true sense of the word, but that wouldn't have meant that that was a proof that man has evolved. Can you see what I'm saying? Um, I mean, it's like the pygmies, or these tribes cut off in the Amazon, and things like this. They live in a very primitive way, don't they? Now, yet, does that mean that they're, they're thick well, no, because they learn modern languages very quickly. If, you, if they allow themselves to be civilised, some don't want to be. If they don't want to be, that's up to them. But those who don't mind that, they pick up the new technology very, very quickly. They're not thick at all. They're not primeval man. They're simply man, as he's always been for the last 6,000 years. Perfectly intelligent man, but living in circumstances where, for whatever reason, he's kind of living back to nature rather than with modern technology. So, I mean, the caveman fits in simply that when environment changed on the earth after the flood, men, for a time being, as they migrated out into different parts of the world, they had to live wherever they could find cover. I mean, for the first time, there were sub-zero temperatures. They've never had to face that before. For the first time, there was driving rain. You know, there was death by pneumonia and things like that. You see, everything changed after the flood, you see. And so that, that's where cavemen fit in. Um, you know, no way of proof in any sense at all for sort of evolution and Darwin's theories. But I mean, certainly cavemen did exist. But um, as I say, not on their way evolving to being man as he is now. So in any of these... Uh places where they find these <coughs> skeletons and all that, and they say that's uh, 500 million years old. It's mm. not true, though. Well, no. These statements that here we have something that we can date as being 500 million years old and things like that, they're based on various dating systems, um, which, to be quite honest, they're not accurate at all. Um, I mean, they just don't work, is the only way I can put it. You see, there is no scientific way to date anything over 6,000 years, I think it is. I mean, that's just a fact. It is not scientifically possible to date anything more than, I think, it's between four and 6,000 years, I think it is. And uh, it's just not possible. There is no scientific system that can date 
anything like that at all. But what they do is they use these various radioisotope things, all right, that there are certain rocks, all right, with um, radioactive isotopes in them, and they have a half-life, and they emit, what is it, I suppose it would be electrons, wouldn't it, or neutrons or something, anyway, they emit part of their power, as it were, over a very set period, all right. So, that assuming you've got the isotope, say that it's full, let's speak like that, say that it's full, all right, they would know how long it would take for it to get half empty, so many millions of years, all right. So the point is that they find one and say it's nearly half empty. They would say, right, therefore the rock that this is in must be X millions of years old. But there's a presupposition. It's presupposing that it was full to start with. Can you see what I'm saying? Also, if you get a solar flare, the atomic clock, as it's called, is reset. Because the radiation from the sun knocks out all the atoms and the electrons, etc., etc., and resets it. It's rather like stalactites and stalagmites, um, that normatively they would take a very, very, very long time to form, alright? Because scientists can see the way that they form, and they would take, some of them, millions of years to form, alright? So therefore they find one and they say it's only millions of years old, until in mine shafts they found really big ones forming in about five years. <laughs> can you see that? Because there were extenuating circumstances happening, they wouldn't normally, but a, a factor had been sort of there that wouldn't normally have been there, i.e. a mine shaft. Now, the whole point is that unless you can prove that something always works exactly the same, then it can't be used for proof. If you see what I'm saying. So, if you've got a rock, alright, with these isotopes in it, alright, heavy rain will wash out that isotope, alright? And suddenly, in half an hour, it's changed several million years. But the reason that they stick to these as gospel truth is because it fits in with their theories. According to their theories, these rocks are likely to be so many millions of years old. Please turn your cassette over. Thank you. Well, the whole point is that the evidence can be explained by two different theories. Either over millions of years, with the processes we see at work today, erosion, volcanic activity, earth tremors, etc., etc., or a cataclysm or a catastrophe about the size of the biblical flood. Either explains it. But the point is the flood is not accepted today because at back of the flood was a supernatural event. And modern science, in its unspoken rules, quite unscientifically rules out the supernatural. And that is a perfectly unscientific thing to do. I mean, modern science works under um, a kind of a rule that is thus. It's called the uniformity of causes in a closed system. All right? Now, what that means is this. If you've got a system, it's either open or it's closed. Now, what it's saying is that everything that there is is in a closed system, i.e. that all there is is nature. All that exists is nature. And there is nothing to interfere with nature at all. Alright? Therefore, all you've got are nature and the forces in nature. Now, as Christians, we believe in the uniformity of causes in an open system, which means we believe all the laws of science, as scientists have found them, but we believe in an open system. And it's an open system because God, who is outside of nature, can act into it and make changes to nature at any time. Now, can you see the difference? Therefore, that's why modern man laughs at the idea of the miraculous because they don't believe that there's anything in the system except the laws of nature. Therefore, when you talk about the laws of nature being suspended, they laugh at you because there's nothing to suspend the laws of nature. All there is is nature itself. 
Whereas for us, we know that God is beyond that nature. He's the one who actually put nature there and made it work the way it does. But he is free to reorder it, play around with it, and manipulate it at any time, you see. Now then, the flood, what was that happening? It was God reordering his nature, you see. Taking it from one thing that it was in, i.e. the earth imperfect environment, as well as sticking the pin in it and changing everything. And it was God who did it, you see. Now, modern science won't accept that. Therefore, all it's left with is, as I say, it's uniformitarianism in principle, i.e. that all there is are the forces we see at work today over millions and millions of years. You know when scientists talk about the Ice Age, do they say it came in slowly or it came in catas, what's it? <laughs> oh no, the Ice Age is a slow thing, that is uniformitarianism. Well, so, so it's those mammals that were found in the, in the ice that still had... Um, still tropical vegetation. Still had tropical vegetation in their mouths and in one sort of finds remarkable in modern science is all the data and scientists are supposed to love data aren't they all the evidence gathering it together to come up with their theories well it's amazing how choosy modern scientists are in the evidence i've never heard explanations for things like that and even theories about the ice age you see in the general thing that we evolved you see the theories explaining how that happened are changing all the time. Every 10 years that passes, a new theory arrives, you see. So, I mean, the Ice Ages, they keep... I mean, their dates are always changing. So, I mean, you can't really pin it down anyway. I mean, it's like traditionally, I mean, the moon, all right, the moon broke off the Earth, didn't it? This is what we've always been told. Well, now since the moon landings, we know that the moon has never been part of the Earth. Obviously, they've got to sit on it for a few more years yet, because they can't let anyone realise that they've got a major thing. I mean, and it's not a small thing to get wrong, is it? The fact that the, uh, the, that the moon didn't spin off the Earth, because it's still in all the textbooks in schools, you see. Right, we now know that the moon did not spin off the Earth at all. They've got nothing to do with each other at all. Um, and so, in a few years' time, they've got to bring out another theory of the formation of our, our solar system, haven't they? And these theories come out, you know, I mean, the classic example was the idea that the universe was eternal. I mean, this was terrific because it bypassed the really tricky question, how did nothing turn into something all on its own? And they bypassed this with the theory that had been around, I mean, sort of right back to the Greeks, but that the universe was eternal in the sense that it had always been here and it always will be here. And, um, I mean, I even sort of read of an attempt to theorise that somewhere in the universe, negative particles that didn't actually exist were combining with positive particles that did exist and bringing forth new neutral matter. I mean, absolutely... I mean, it all sounds very scientific, but it's more lunatic than simply accepting that God bunged the whole thing here. But for years and years, anyone who was anyone believed the universe was eternal. And that solved all the problems of God and how the universe got here. Until modern science got to the point where it simply had to admit beyond doubt that it couldn't be eternal and that it had a definite beginning. I mean, there is no doubt that the universe began at a certain time. Now, there's the big discrepancy they go for the Big Bang n billion years ago, all right, when the truth of the matter was a, a zap 6 million, uh, 6,000 years ago. But, I mean, again, all the time they have to revise their theories, you see, so you can't really pin it down. I mean, these dates are always changing. You know, it, it depends what generation you went to school in.
but it, it's continuously changing. Not one instance of anything in the Bible actually being disproved by science. I mean, it's just it's just not there. Nothing of what the Bible says has ever been disproved by science. Does the Bible give us any clue about I can understand the canopy coming down in water and tons and tons of water. Yeah. Okay, but, but the Bible says the, the, the waters went down. That's right. Uh, where did the water go to? Does the Bible give us any Well, right. In actual fact, it wasn't just... Let's have a look at the actual... If you turn to Genesis 1, that it's not just that all this water came down from outer space, but there were billions of tons of water right down in the centre of the earth that were released under pressure as well. Let's just read it. Let's just read it. Genesis chapter 1. Alright, let's start from verse 1. I'll point out any interesting things that crop up textually as well. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, I'll say a couple of things about there. About that. You've heard me say this before, but notice the way it says, in the beginning, God created. In that sentence, the concept of time is linked in with the concept of the creation of matter. Can you see that? It doesn't say in the beginning there was God. And God created. Can you see that? The concept of the beginning is tied in with God creating. Have you got that? So that here, in Genesis 1, Time began when God created, all right? And of course it took Einstein and afterwards for us to understand that we live in a space-time continuum. You cannot have time without matter, you cannot have matter without time. See, 20th century physics there in Genesis 1.1. Also, quite interesting, you see in the beginning God, all right? Now that word God, the Hebrew, Elohim, it's plural. It's plural. And yet the verb created is singular. You've got the Trinity, one God, three persons. See, it's all there, right from verse 1. Now then, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Now, what you've got here is chaos, and the reason that you've got chaos, which now needs to be reordered, and the reordering took the next six and a half days, like, is that when God spoke the word, he says, right, I want a universe. And obviously what he did is he brought all the matter or all the bare stuff of the universe into existence all at once. So all the atoms, all the molecules, he zapped them into being. But when he did it, all you had was what I call bare stuff. You see, it wasn't arranged yet. Can you see, all the matter got zapped into existence, but then God started to fit it together rather like a Meccano set. Can you see what I'm saying? Hence you've got chaos, because God's got the matter, and now he's going to rearrange it, and to make the universe as he wanted it. Um, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now this is it. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. Now the firmament here is the air. And can you see what it's saying? What is going to be in between the air? There's going to be waters and waters. Can you see what I mean? So here, at this point, you've got the earth. But what is the earth largely comprised of? Water. Then you've got the firmament, or the atmosphere, then you've got more water. Can you see that? And God made the firmament, and separated the waters which were under the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament. Can you see that? So what we've got thus far is the earth covered in water, alright, and also you've got water above the atmosphere of the earth. Um, verse 9, then God said, let the waters under the heavens, alright, the heavens is the firmament there, alright, the sky, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. Alright, so there dry land starts to appear. But can you see the main thing, that you've got water surrounding the earth and you've got water on the earth. Can you see the importance there? 
Now, bearing that in mind, um, and also the water is gathered in one place. That's right. So all the land was in one place. All the land was in one and place. All the water that's right, because of course when the flood came in, it sets up continental drift. It's rather like if you had a Jacob's cracker and sort of dropped a marble on it, it would split. Can you see that? And that's what happened, and hence you got the continental um, drift. Also, it's quite interesting as well, and you can do this with a map of the world. Um, if you've got a map of the world, you can largely see that all the continents were once one. Have you ever looked at it? You can kind of see it, all right? Now then, interesting. If you then visualise what it would be like if you could put them back together, all right, so that there's one landmass. And the interesting thing is, in the millennium, this is exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be one landmass again in the millennium. Now, if you do that, you push all the continents together so they're back where the scientists know they used to be. Again, the disagreement between us and the scientists is that they say it took millions of years. The Bible says it took a few days to set the process up. All right. Now then, if you push all the continents together so you've got the one landmass, do you know what's absolutely dead centre to that landmass? Jerusalem. See, the Holy Land, the centre of the earth. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Do it on a map. It works. It's terrific. So you've got the waters above and the water below. Now, if we actually turn to the flood itself, and if you um, find seven, chapter seven, while you're finding that, I'm just looking at something else very quickly. Right, okay, um, yeah, chapter 7 and verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Now, there's all this water that the earth was created on. Can you see that you've got all this water under pressure beneath the earth burst forth? So you can immediately see how the earth is ruptured, can't you? Or rather like the air rushing out of a balloon, and how that's going to really affect the earth in quite a way. So you've got the, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, boom, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and that is the canopy of water that was above the atmosphere coming down as well. Now bearing that in mind, if you turn to 2 Peter, Because basically, what I've said in this about uniformitarianism versus catastrophism, to use the technical terms, Peter actually prophesied that this was going to happen. Peter prophesied the theory of uniformitarianism. Now then, if you find 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start reading at verse 3. Now bear in mind that I've said uniformitarianism is the belief that the universe is a closed system. All there ever has been, is or can be in nature is nature itself. It's a closed system. The forces we see at work today are all there are, but they've been working for millions and millions of years, and hence create change. Now then, verse 3. First of all, you must understand this that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their passions, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? All right? Now, obviously, what Peter is saying, we believe in the Lord, we know that Jesus is alive, because he's alive, because he's come once, he's going to come again. All right? But the antithesis of that is that there is no God, and if there isn't, he's not going to come, is he? Can you see what I mean? So Peter is saying, in the last day, people are going to, sort of appear and they're saying you know you wallies waiting for the second coming of this Jesus who doesn't exist because we live in a closed system there is no God to come all right now then listen to what they say where is the promise of his coming now listen to this for ever since the fathers fell asleep all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation now can you see it that's uniformitarianism 
Peter's saying in the last days, men are going to appear and they're going to scoff at Christians. And the reason they're going to scoff is this. Christians are waiting for intervention in the universe from a God who's outside of the universe. Can you see that? That is what we're waiting for. We're going to be laughed at by men because we're waiting for that. And the reason they're going to be laughing at us is because they're going to say, Intervention from outside the universe? No. Nothing will ever change the universe. All there is in the universe are the laws of the universe itself. All things have continued as they have done from the beginning. Can you see that in this verse? It's uniformitarianism. It's saying there will be no divine intervention. All you will ever get in nature is nature itself. There is no God to intervene. Now then, verse 5. Now look what he ties this up with. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth formed out of water and by means of water through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now can you see exactly what Peter's saying? He's saying that these men are going to say, look, the forces we see at work today are the only forces there have ever been. There is no divine force acting from the outside. There's only the forces of nature. And the forces of nature are marching on, plodding on, over millions of years, slowly doing their changing work. And yet what Peter says, but he says they're deliberately ignoring Noah's flood. Because Peter's saying that the flood of Noah shows us exactly how it is that the world came to be in the present state that it's in. Can you see? And what Peter is saying here, look, it's uniformitarianism or it's catastrophism. But you only end up believing uniformitarianism, i.e. that nature is all there is, if you deliberately refuse to accept the flood. Can you see what I'm saying? And that 2,000 years ago, Peter wrote a letter predicting the clash between Christianity and evolution. I mean, is, isn't that amazing in, in the scriptures? And also this thing um, in verse 5 where it says, and it was about the earth and I wanted, an earth formed out of water and by means of water. So again, you can see that when God created the world, the importance that water played, and there was an awful lot of water around at the flood. This was the point. It came up from under the earth, it was pouring down on the earth from space, and it totally changed the face of the earth. Modern scientists say the earth is in the state it is because of slow natural processes over millions of years. The Bible says it's in the state that it is because God intervened and judged the world with the flood, and it's one or the other. And Peter says in the last days this is going to be a main conflict for the church. And this has never been a conflict for the church except until the time of Darwin. Did people get that thing I read from Peter? Because that's tremendously important. Yeah. You know, an actual prophecy in the Bible from Peter sort of predicting the clash that has only begun in the last 200 years, really, between the idea of uniformitarianism and catastrophism. That either it's evolution or it was the flood. And yeah, there it is in Peter. Years.